Anyone in here ever felt like they've settled for less? You say, yeah, I'm sitting next to them. <laughs> I guess it could be a relationship that you settled for. Some of you, maybe when it came time for college and you were to pick the right college, you had some colleges that were entertaining you and they were prestigious in nature, but you felt like it might have been a little risky to move away from home, so you stayed close to home, and maybe you settled for a university that was, was close by. Things ended up well for you, good university, but it just wasn't as prestigious as the ones that, that were wanting you to come and be a part of them that were further away. Maybe it was a job as soon as you got out of school, or maybe you found a job when the market was scarce, and now you look at it and you say, you know what, I wish I could do something else. I feel like I've settled for where I'm at right now. A couple weeks ago, uh, our boys stayed the night at our children's ministry camp out at Scott and Kara Arms House. And Kelly and I had Friday night completely to ourselves. Doesn't happen very often. We could have gone anywhere we wanted to go as long as we were back by 10 a.m. Saturday morning. So we dropped off the boys. We kissed them goodbye. And then we got in the car. And here was the conversation. Well, where do you want to eat? And she says to me, I don't care. Whatever sounds good to you. You've had the conversation before, haven't you? And this banter continues while we drive to this undisclosed, mysterious location that we don't know where we're going to. I don't know where we're going, but you know, the guy like me, I don't want to be late to it. So we are flying <laughs> north, kind of northwest, and trying to figure out where we want to eat. And we, we were thinking someplace in Evansville, but now we're so far north that it feels like we would be backtracking if we started to head south. And we hit a stoplight, and I say to my wife, well, what are you hungry for? And she says, anything sounds good to me. So we've passed some of our favorite restaurants here in Washington. They're all in the review mirror now. And there is one place up on the horizon. We just decided to pull right into it. It is not known for anything amazing. It's just known for food. It's a greasy spoon kind of a place, but we're hungry. And it doesn't matter right now if it's Ruth Chris's Steakhouse or if it's this greasy spoon that we just parked our vehicle at. We get into the restaurant. We slide on in to the booth. We're handed the menu. We order, and we're eating. I look over at my wife and said, you know, we could have been eating Bang Bang Shrimp at Bonefish Grill right now, one of my wife's favorite restaurants. And she says, you shouldn't have settled. <laughs> you know, we both knew that evening that we could have had something better, but because of convenience and just because of the way we were feeling in the moment, we settled for something that was much less. And today in this series of messages, we're going to ground ourselves in the book of Hebrews for like the next eight or nine weeks. It's in the New Testament portion of your Bible, kind of towards the back, and we, we don't really know who wrote this, this book. Uh, we think the Apostle Paul might have written it, or maybe his counterpart, his compadre in ministry, Barnabas, could have written this book. But one thing for sure is it was written to a group of people who had settled in their faith. They were looking for maybe convenience or they were trying to add on to some things. And Hebrews was originally written to a group that had converted to Christianity from Judaism. That's why it's called Hebrews. It was written to a group of Hebrew people. And now they're being tempted by family and friends to go back to their, their Jewish roots. <laughs> or at least they're willing to compromise and hold on to some of the things of their past, some of the traditions of Judaism, and kind of mix them in with Christianity. And now they have this kind of pseudo-Christian Judeo thing going on. Some of you, I think, can under, I kind of identify with this. It's not too far removed from some of you in this room. When you started attending this church, for some of you, it was like you had abandoned your faith. 
You were raised maybe in a staunch Catholic home. You were born into it. You can't remember a time when you didn't go to the Catholic church. And now you started attending here and family acts like you have abandoned your roots. If you just come back to your senses, if you just come back to your faith. Some of you have come from a background of Baptist or Lutheran, and at times, maybe you're tempted to hold on to some of those denominational teachings, maybe that the church or man had thrown in there and added on to what Christ had already talked about. But here's the message of Hebrews, and we all need to hear it. Christ is all we need. You don't need Jesus plus something else. You don't need to hyphenate what Jesus has already done. You don't need to appendage anything to your faith. You only need to pursue Jesus Christ. Don't add to Jesus. Jesus is all that we need for salvation. Because most people think that there's got to be more that needs to be done for yourself to be saved. That you've got to jump through some kind of hoops or maybe you even have to appease God and that's why you find people who are here today and they're gone tomorrow. They're caught up in some kind of sin throughout the week and they don't feel like they are welcome back in here or that they can face God. Maybe they're overwhelmed with guilt because they've got to do more to appease God so that he'll love him. But here's the, the message of Hebrews. It's not what you do, it's what's been already done on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's already been done for you. Salvation has been made complete. So the big idea is this, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is all that we need. And that's what we're going to study for the next nine weeks. Jesus is greater. He's greater than any disappointment we might face. He's greater than any challenge we might have. He's greater than any strengths that you might possess. Jesus is greater than any religion that you might cling to. Jesus is better. You don't need something else. Here's the equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And yet we're caught up in this religious mode. We're in gear for religiosity to say Jesus plus, right? Jesus plus attendance, Jesus plus communion, Jesus plus confession, Jesus plus, and we add all these things onto there and it becomes a heaping pile of burden to our shoulders when Christ has already completed it on the cross. And the message series is this, for those who are over-religious. The message series are, is for those who have complicated the purity and the simplicity of Christianity. Those who this letter was written to had hyphenated Jesus. It was Jesus and, and you'll find in the book, Jesus and angels. You need Jesus and angels. You don't know. You need Jesus and you need, you need Moses. No, you need Jesus and you need, you need a priest. And No, no, you need Jesus and. and. This is the way we treat religion. And this is how religious structures are formed by saying Jesus and something man has put in place. When in fact, all we need is Jesus. You see, he's greater than, you name it. He eclipses everything the sun does. So don't settle for Jesus plus religion. There is something better. There's something simpler. Just as follow Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter one, let's look there together because they get right to the point. There's no opening greeting to this book. Uh, there's no, hold on guys, let me kind of ramp this up so you can get ready for it. He just flat out tells us what he wants us to understand and it is it is deep stuff hebrews chapter 1 start in verse 1 in the past god spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son who he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe the son is the radiance 
of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Let's walk through this four verses in four different parts together. First, the writer says, I can understand why it is that you used to add things on to God. Because in the past, God was really hard to understand. And the author admits it. God was hard to understand. Emphasize, though, the word was. God would only speak to a handful of individuals within the Bible. He spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. He spoke to Abraham and Sarah and told them that they would be, he would be the father of a great nation. He took, talked to Noah and told him to go build an ark. Only God spoke to about 15 individuals in the Old and New Testament combined. 15 individuals, that's it. His primary way of speaking was through the prophets, men and women of God who spoke through what God had laid on their heart or maybe through a vision or a dream or had shown up and spoke to them so that they would go and carry that message to God's people. But let me tell you about the prophets. They spoke only to their time and their situation. And while there's still great meaning for us today from what they said then, they were limited to what was going on in their society. For example, Amos, the prophet, spoke specifically about social justice issues. Because in his day and age, people had little concern for one another. Isaiah spoke about the splendor and the holiness of God because people had forgot to revere the Lord and they needed to hear that God was holy. Hosea had spoke about God's amazing love and forgiveness when Israel needed it the most because they had rebelled against God and chosen their own path. But all of them spoke from their experiences. They were limited by their humanality. Because they were only able to talk about God in fragments, people were only able to see God in part, not in whole. So for 4,000 years, people tried to make sense of who God was. They tried to fill in the gaps where the prophets didn't add to. And just through what we know about the Old Testament is all you'd know about God. So we wouldn't know if, if we didn't have the New Testament scriptures, if we didn't have Christ, we wouldn't know anything about the church. We wouldn't know anything about Christ and God's redemptive plan of salvation. We would have a different understanding of God than we do now. So what people did was they tried to fill in the gaps, and you can just imagine it. They had superstitions. They had traditions. They had a religious system. It was like they were putting together this this enormous jigsaw puzzle, yet they didn't have all the pieces. And they never had the picture in front of them as to what it was to look like. And so they're trying to figure out who God is by just the pieces of the prophets. And they didn't have the entire picture. And here's what verse 2 tells us. But in these last days, in these last days, that's, that's our time period. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. So the author says, I know in the past God was hard to understand. But now he's not so hard to understand. I know in the past, God is difficult to understand because how can you really intellectually fathom a God who is outside time, a God who has always existed, a God who has created us, he's able to be at all places at all times. How can you comprehend that? (laughs) As a matter of fact, God told the prophet Isaiah these things. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. Now, here's here's, here's the clincher. Can you discover everything about the Almighty? No way. 
We'll never really know the full picture of God until we get into the glories of heaven. That's when we'll know the full picture of God. But the writer of Hebrews says, I understand back in the day through only the prophets, you couldn't know God completely. But today, in this day, God has spoke to us in a way we can understand. Catch this. You are in a privileged time and place in history. You are in a place where you now have the full picture of God revealed. All that we can handle of God, God has shown us. At one time, there used to be so much that they didn't know about God. And there was this mischaracterization about God. And maybe some of you still have this mischaracterization about God. You have this myth that there was a God of the Old Testament and he was angry. But now there is the God of the New Testament and he seems to be so gracious. And you have this idea that God has some kind of split personality. But let me tell you why God got the mischaracterization of being angry. It's because primarily his children only knew God's discipline. And when children only see discipline of the Father, they sometimes think, misrepresentatively, that that's the anger of the Father. And they haven't seen the true grace of it because Christ hasn't been ushered into. It's not that you're seeing two gods with a split personality or a God with a split personality. You're seeing one God, but you're seeing one group of people not seeing the complete picture. And us, who gets to see the complete picture? Discipline and grace. And God's spoken this through his son, and we're able to see it. And so what the writer is saying is, one time you had an incomplete picture, but now you have a complete picture of who God is because of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said these words in the New Testament. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them. There's importance to the Old Testament texts. I have not come to abolish them, but what has he come to do? Let's say the word together. But to fulfill them. He's come to fulfill all things. And so Jesus brings a completeness. That's the word fulfill. He brings a wholeness to the complete picture of who God is. And here's what's interesting, is that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Wouldn't you say that was his mission statement, to seek and save the lost? And anytime someone would get in the way of someone coming to God for salvation, Jesus would really line them out. About the only time Jesus would line somebody out in the scriptures and discipline them, correct them, is when someone would get in the way of somebody else coming to faith in God. And Jesus really had a problem with the religious leaders of his day because the religious leaders of day were saying, God plus. God plus all these things you've got to do so that he'll have a relationship with you. And they just kept on heaping on one thing after another. And Jesus looks at them and here's what he says. They'll crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. If you want God plus, if you want to hyphenate faith, you're going to be overrun with a burden that you'll never be able to lift off of your shoulders. And they're saying, if you want God to love you, then you need to do all these other things to get to God. You need to do all these other things to just appease him. But let me tell you what Jesus taught, and this is, this is so meaningful. Jesus taught these words. Now, just put yourself in an audience that was just believing that you had to do a thousand things for God to love you and a thousand things for God to welcome you into his presence and a thousand things for God to forgive you. And here's what Jesus says. He brings us a whole new picture of God. He says, come to me, all you're weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, and that word for yoke is is teaching. Put my teaching over your shoulders, And learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. You know the line, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What did he just say about the religious leaders? They have a burden that will crush you. They've mixed this thing up. 
They've ruined it. And you all are settling for it. God wants the burden to be light. Listen how it's been paraphrased. Are you tired? You know, some of those guys are saying, yeah, I am. I'm tired of jumping through hoops. Are you worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, Jesus says, and you'll, you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So no longer do you need to wonder what God expects of you, like those in the Old Testament. And no longer do you need to worry or wonder where you stand with God anymore. Years ago, there was a book written by a guy by the name of Lee Strobel. It was called uh, What Jesus Would Say. It listed off of series of politicians and celebrities, just headline makers of the day back in the 90s. And the author would then begin to answer a series of questions of what Jesus would say to people like Rush Limbaugh or Madonna. And he'd answer these questions from the words of Jesus. And his attempt was to tell those of us that Jesus has already spoken to us in the modern day. He's already been the answer to every person and predicament and problem and pain you can face. So you might be in here today and you might wonder... Or you might be caught up in a sexual sin and you're wondering what God would say to you today. What did he say to the prostitute who fell at his feet and was humiliated, ready to be punished by the religious leaders who wanted to kill her? Jesus stooped down to her level and he forgave her. And then he said to her, go now and leave your lifestyle of sin. And then he looked at the religious leaders as he stood back up straight and he said, whoever you without, the, without sin can cast the first stone. Well, Jesus, Jesus will redeem you if you're caught in sexual sin. If you're addicted to a substance or a sin that is controlling you and you can't seem to break free from it, well, what's God going to say to you? I mean, was methamphetamine a problem in Jesus' day? Well, What did he say to the man who was filled with demons and unable to control himself from doing evil? The religious leaders had chained him up in a cemetery to keep him away from society, and Jesus set him free from not just the chains, but also set him free from the evil that was controlling him. And he restored the man back to life. And Jesus said, you return home and you tell everybody what I've done for you. Be a great testimony about me. Jesus can restore, is what the Bible tells those who are addicted and struggle with habitual sin. You want to hear what Jesus has to say to those who are murderers? He says it's not just the action that condemns. It's the heart that's angry and unforgiving too that I condemn. How about what does Jesus say to those that are having extramarital affairs or having sex outside of marriage? He not only condemns adultery, he also condemns those that lust And look at others lustfully. Friends, Jesus has shown us what God would say in every predicament, to every pain, to every problem, to every person. Let's go back to verse 2 of Hebrews 1. But in these days he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, 
And then you're about ready to read through together seven statements of superiority of the son's revelation in contrast to people like Moses and the angels, etc. Now, I know it's not listed out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So let me list it to you as we read along. And I think we could probably spend about half a year preaching on these seven things. And we're not. We're going to spend about 10 minutes preaching on these things. I'm not going to do it justice. And so here's what it says in verse 2. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. That's the first. First statement. He appointed heir of all things. So what? Jesus is the heir of all things, right? When you're an heir of something, you're going to be given something at the end. Verse or number 2. Through whom also he made the universe. What's the saying? Wait, Jesus was there when the earth was spoken to existence when the universe was created number three the sun is the radiance of god's glory number four and the exact representation of his being number five sustaining all things by his powerful word notice that it doesn't take much for god to sustain this world jesus is in is sustaining it and all he needs to do is to speak to it and to sustain it he's 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 not just trying his best to keep it under control six after he had Provided purifications for sins. Seventh statement, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. All those statements point to the fact that Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Now, we don't need to know more about God. You don't need to have some kind of second revelation. Jesus is revelation enough. It's like drinking from the fire hose here, okay? It's pretty hard to do. There's so much jam-packed within this, but let's take a look at three statements. Here's statement number one. Statement number one is, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. So here's what this tells me. If you want to know God, you get to know Jesus. If you want to know God, you get to know Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the perfect reflection of the majesty of God. And when you see Jesus' followers ask God, or ask to see God, here's what Jesus told him. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is saying, I'm right here. I am God. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. He is the perfect reflection of God. He's God. Remember, he boldly proclaimed, I and the Father are one. God and the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're of the same essence, of the same nature. If you've ever been to the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas, on the wall near the main entrance is a portrait with the following inscription. It says, James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembles his uncle. It's placed here by his family so that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. There is no picture, literal picture of God. Jesus is the picture that's been made complete. And it's in these pages of scripture right here. That you can know who God is and you can understand who God is and his immense love for you because of not only the Old Testament ancient scriptures and prophets, but because of what Christ has done through them as well. Here's the second statement. The exact representation of his being. This means that he was chiseled out with the same chisel out of the same block. Now this answers the question that some of you might have. Some of you have the question, is God the Father big God and Jesus the Son little God? Is Jesus like God light? Is Jesus the mini-me version of God? 
No. Hebrews answer this, and now I'm going to about get is about as deep as the ocean here. So don't go holding your breath on me. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is just as much completely God as God the Father is completely God, as God the Spirit is completely God. It's called the Holy Trinity. And there is nothing on earth that we can compare it to. Mathematicians have tried, and they say it like this. One times one times one equals one. It's about the best we got. Isn't it great? Because what that does, it reminds me that man didn't make this stuff up because if they did, they'd want an answer for everything. So this is important because what Hebrews is teaching is God is Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. And Jesus put on our clothes flesh and he understands us. God understands us because he dwelled with us. You can't, there is no other religion on earth that says God came to us. It's all about climbing a ladder so that you can work your way up to God. Are you getting this? How important Christianity is? How important Christ is to us? It used to be all about how we can climb our way to God. And, and God says, no, I've, I've come down to be with you. I've, I've been there. I've walked it. And we're going to see that a few more times in the book of Hebrews, how, how Jesus has walked it. And here's what's so important about it. He walked it in perfection is how he walked in this life. He walked it with perfection. And Hebrews is saying Jesus is perfect. Jesus is holy, just like God is holy. So here's the third statement and the last statement I want to look at just for a moment. He writes, Jesus purified, uh, Jesus provided purification for sins. Here's what Jesus did. Number one, Christ made us purified by becoming polluted in our place. I can't take credit for that line, but it's good. Christ made us purified by becoming polluted in our place. You know, the word purification means to cleanse, to remove the stain, the, the defect. It also means to remove the guilt that's surrounded with being stained in sin and shame so that you can be embedded into Jesus Christ. Sometimes we feel like we can never get clean. Sometimes we feel like we've done such, uh, such a mess of things and, and have sinned so greatly that there's no way that we can be forgiven, no way that we can come face to face with God ever again. But Christ made us purified and he became polluted in our place. Sometimes you feel like you're wearing the scarlet letter but those are just feelings. How does Jesus deal with our pollution? I'll tell you how he deals with our pollution. He is an amazing creator and sustainer, but he's also our sin bearer. It's amazing to think about that he is holding the world together right now, and yet he decided to come down here and take on our sins. He created all of this and knew we were going to make a mess of it, and he came down and he said, I'm going to forgive you of those things. He became a sacrificial lamb. Here's what the apostle Paul writes. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us. You see this. God made him who had no sin. God became sin for us so that in him we might become what? The righteousness. We might be right with God. You were never right before. Only with Jesus Christ can you be made right. Now here's something to ponder. This is, this is deep again, okay? Don't hold your breath. We're going, down, we're going down deep for a second. When the earth was created, God spoke it. 
And Christ was present. And so Christ, being the creator, spoke this universe into existence. The Trinity spoke it into existence. Jesus spoke you and me into existence, Adam and Eve into existence. He spoke the complexities of this world into existence that science is still trying to make sense of and will never make sense of the glories of God. But yet when it came time to redeem us, he couldn't just speak it. He had to be a part of it. He had to get dirty with it. He had to come down and rescue it. He couldn't just say, well, let's make it clean. Be clean. He had to take the sin that was upon us and put it upon himself. And he became polluted so that we could be made right in God. Friends, I hope that puts in your life and in your heart a sense of joy and overwhelmed respect for our God who says, I couldn't just speak it away. I had to go down and take care of it myself. And I was willing to do it because I love them greatly. Here's the second part of this. Christ purified us uh, with a once-for-all sacrifice. We don't need to keep on adding on to it. And this is the problem of the Hebrews, and this might be the problem of you as you consider religion. You just keep adding on to it, and you keep on sacrificing Christ. Now, under the Old Testament system, there was a sacrifice for sins that happened daily, weekly, monthly, and annually. Every time that temple was being filled with animals that were pure and spotless, as perfect as they could find, and they were being slaughtered, and there was blood everywhere, and the smell of incense and burning of fat was constantly being wafted through the air because the sacrifices never stopped and the priests never stopped stabbing and killing and bleeding out. And if, if, you, you, if you're a part, if ever we're a part of the Catholic Church, I guess the, the only way I can equate this uh, is that you were told that you needed to confess your sins like on a weekly basis, uh, knowing that maybe next month you'd have to come back in and you'd have to confess them all again. So there's this like reciprocal nature. You sin, you got to confess. You sin, you got to go back and confess. And, and then there's this teaching that if you were to die with a, a mortal sin in your soul, you have the chance of going to hell. Now, according to the Vatican, daily priests still carry out the sacrifice of the mass. Most of us just call it the mass. And in that mass, I, I'm, not, I'm not, if you're aware, Christ was suppo- is supposedly re-sacrificed every day. Did you know that? The Eucharist is the sacrifice of Christ every day. Here's how they explain it. The Eucharist is a true sacrifice, not just a commemorative meal. It's not like the Lord's Supper. Christ is being sacrificed again. It's interesting to me that every religion outside of Christianity says, you got to keep on sacrificing, you got to keep on doing, you got to keep on doing, you got to keep on doing. But Christianity says, no, 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 it's been done. It's been done. Religion says you got to keep on doing. you got to keep on sacrificing. Christ's sacrifice was a one-time-for-all sacrifice. It doesn't need to be keep on being reciprocally sacrificed. It doesn't need to happen that way. And in light of every kind of sacrificial system, every, in light of every kind of way to be purified and be made clean, Christ's death on the cross made us clean once and for all. His purification was forever. It doesn't need to repeat, repeat it again. It's unparalleled. Here's what the Bible, here's what the Bible says about it. For Christ also suffered, what? Once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. I'm the unrighteous. He's the righteous. I'm the unrighteous. To do what? To bring us to God, right? 
You don't have to make these stair steps up. You've been brought to God. If you've received Jesus, the righteous has brought you close to God. Jesus Christ has brought you close. His death was a one-time event. There's no need for this continual sacrifice anymore. (laughs) Praise God. That is done. It's complete. Its work is over. Isn't that why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And here's what's beautiful about this. Hebrews, Hebrews sets it up perfectly. Sets it up perfectly. And when the purification of sins happens, the seventh statement is, he sits in the majesty of the Father. He sits. Two reasons why you sit down. Either number one, you're tired and lazy, or number two, the work has been completed. And Jesus sits because the work has been completed. It's done forever. Friends, there is nothing more that you need to do for God to love you any more than he loves you. There's nothing more that you need to do for your sins to be forgiven. There's nothing more that you need to do to have God fall madly in love with you. He's already in love with you because Jesus Christ has shown you the extent of his love and it is done. You just need to receive Jesus. It is that simple. Don't settle for anything different than that. And so today, I'm calling you to come to Christ, to come to Jesus and receive his righteousness. He has been polluted for you so that you can be made pure in God's sight. He is waiting to receive you and welcome you home. Our heavenly father has sent him to us so that we might have the relationship that he's always wanted to have with you. So quit adding to it and start resting in the love of our Lord.